There is a personal conflict brewing in the life of every true believer. This conflict is brought about by two opposing forces which reside within the believing person. The first one of these forces all men are born with, it's our sinful nature. Romans 5.12 bears this out. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The second force only resides in a converted believer, and it's our new nature, which, by the way, produces righteousness. Also out of Romans 5, verse 17, it says, For by the transgression of the one, Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who received the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in the life through the one, Jesus Christ. I guess what I'm trying to say is one way of confirming your faith is seeing if there resides in you a spiritual conflict. When you sin, do you regret it and show deep remorse? If you do, this is evidence that the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you. Just because one has been born again and becomes a believer does not mean, as some teach, that sin no longer lives in you. Our sinful nature will follow us to our graves. Those who are truly striving to spiritually mature don't become sinless, but as they progress through life, they do sin less. To make my point, I want to recall from Scripture some saints, um, some examples of some godly saints who fell into sin. Abraham, you've heard of him, right? He's a liar. Moses, yeah, yeah, he killed a guy. Samson was a womanizer. David, an adulterer and a murderer. Solomon was a serial adulterer. Jonah was a racist bigot. Peter, he denied the Lord repeatedly. Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to God in church. And how about the the church at at Corinth? I mean, they pushed the boundaries of of, uh, carnalism to its very limit. Whole church. Those who are truly striving to spiritually... Oh, sorry. Lost my place. The truth is that God-fearing, Christ-following, spirit-indwelt saints continue to sin because sin continues to live in them. Paul states it very clearly. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. Evil? Paul? Yeah. Take comfort in the fact that even though as a believer, sin or 
evil lives in you, well, so does God. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He instructs his followers to resist the devil, and and he says that if you do, Satan will flee from you. He goes on and promises empowerment to resist temptation. He says that no temptation has overcome you, but such is, is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, there is a conflict inside of you. Two polar opposite natures waging war in the epicenter of your being. And I suggest to you that this is a good thing. It's a bad thing if you, are, if you can sin and you're cavalier about it and you show no remorse. I get emotional because I was there for a long time. <clears throat> it's almost like my personal testimony. It is my personal testimony. <clears throat> there are those who teach that if you come to Jesus, all your problems will just go away that life will be a breeze and you'll receive all that you ask for, that you'll even conquer sin. They lie. They lie. We call these guys prosperity teachers. They name it and claim it crowd. Jesus, on the other hand, said, in the world you have tribulation. Pastor Phil's going to be at this point, at this juncture in John in a few months. Jesus also told us to expect personal persecution, the Beatitudes, remember? What Jesus promised, at least in this life, was conflict. Or why else would he instruct his followers to deny themselves and take up their crosses daily? And then there are those who teach that since all your sins have been forgiven, you're free to live as you see fit. These hyper-grace antinomians, they believe that continuing sin doesn't offend God. They too lie. It does matter how you live your life. Remember, that you are ambassadors to Christ and you're expected to live like it. The last time that I spoke to you, I brought a message in which I challenged you to examine yourself. I recounted several spiritual tests which are found in Scripture. And as you remember, the purpose of these tests is to reveal to yourself whether or not you are truly saved whether or not in God's eye you have been justified. In John 3, 3, Jesus called this justification a new birth. He literally told Nicodemus that you must be born again. Birth, by the way, we don't need the reminder of this, but it's a one-time occurrence. It only happens one period of time in our life. Today, we will look at what happens after the spiritual rebirth. 
we will look into the period immediately following in which we begin to grow. Spiritually speaking, when we, when we talk of being born again, Scripture refers to this one-time act as our justification. From this point in time forward, Scripture identifies this portion of our life as a continuing process as we are being changed into Christ's image. Scripture calls this portion of our life our sanctification. Sanctification, I know it's a big $10 word, but it simply means your spiritual growth as a Christian. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines it as this. The work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. J.I. Packer defines it. Sanctification is an ongoing transformation, and it engenders real righteousness within the frame of relational holiness. And did you realize that all three members of the Godhead are are involved personally in our sanctification? 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. You see the Father involved, right? Hebrews 10.10 By this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see the Son involved. 1 Corinthians 6.11 And such were some of you but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So here we see the Son and the Spirit involved in our sanctification. Now our justification or our regeneration or what we call being born again is a one-time event and it is totally a work of God alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 bears that out. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's a gift to God, not the results of works that no man should boast. But our sanctification, on the other hand, is an ongoing process which lasts from the time of conversion until the time God chooses to take us home. Also in sanctification, the individual has... Listen up to this, please. If you get anything with what I'm saying today... Please listen to this. In sanctification, the individual has input into how quickly he or she spiritually matures. You could look at it as a synergistic cooperation that involves God working with the already justified individual. We who are free from sin's domain are required to exert ourselves in obedience to God. That's not my opinion. That's Paul's teaching found in Romans chapter 6. He says we're free of sin in verses 11, 14, and 18. But he also says in the same passage that our obedience is required. Verses 13, 16, 19. At the same time, we realize that without Christ enabling, we are powerless to live as we should. There's a paradox here, right? And it's being lived out in every believer's life. On the one hand, 
On the one hand, we become new creatures, as is is taught in 2 Corinthians 5.17. And we're expected to live holy and righteous lives, as stated in Ephesians 1.4. And yet, we're utterly unable to because of the sin which indwells us. As taught in Romans 7, verses 14, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. 23. The results, we become frustrated and we, and we cry out, wretched man that I am, wretched woman that I am. Today, we're going to look at one man's personal testimony concerning his ongoing battle with sin. This guy truly strived to live his life in a manner pleasing to God, only to realize that sin still inhabited his being. The person I refer to is no ordinary guy. It's the Apostle Paul, the most notable follower, in my opinion, of Jesus Christ who's ever lived. We'll look at his struggle with sin as he gets very transparent in revealing in the in the revealing of his sanctification process. Our text for today is Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. I hope you guys will follow along. Romans was the fifth out of 13 epistles that Paul, being led by the Spirit, wrote. And I'll remind you that Paul was a mature believer at the time he wrote it. He had already been walking with the Lord for 20 years, and as is with every true believer, the longer that he followed the Lord, the stronger the conflict grew. And we can relate to that. The longer we follow and serve the Lord, the more aware we become of sin in our lives. Right? Am I alone in this? When we are first converted or born again, we have no trouble identifying and addressing the big obvious sins in our lives. We tend to categorize our sins and deal with the most heinous ones, you know, right out of the gate. Those get in the rearview mirror real quick. But we neglect dealing with what we perceive as less offensive transgressions. And since we aren't offended by these lesser errors, we assume that God himself isn't. But the longer that we walk with the Lord through the ministry of the Holy Spirit working within us, the more mature we become in our faith. And we begin to see all sin as as an affront to God. Now, through the working of the Holy Spirit, he convicts us of sin. I already mentioned that. John 6, 8, excuse me. The Spirit also teaches us in Luke 12, 12. He enlightens us, Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. And he leads us into holiness, Romans 8, 14. Just four examples of what the Spirit does for us. And the more mature we become, just as Paul experienced, the more sensitive we become to sin in our life and become progressively repulsed by these new sins 
that are being revealed to us daily. To prove the point, let's chronologically look at Paul's spiritual life. Bruce brought this out a couple weeks ago in his, in his message. In 1 Corinthians 5.9, Paul states, I am the least of the apostles. Now, he wrote that in 56 A.D. In Ephesians 3.8, he says, I am the least of all the saints. He wrote that in 61 A.D. Six years later, and he went from the least of the apostles to the least of the saints. It's as if he's getting worse, not better. Then in 1 Timothy 1.15, 63 A.D., still yet two years later, he makes this assertion. I am the foremost of all sinners. Wow. As Paul grew spiritually, he became more aware of sin in his personal life and became increasingly aware of the battle he must fight for personal holiness. The same will be true of you and me if we're truly walking with and growing in Christ. You might ask, why is Paul seemingly digressing? It's a good question. It's because of his growing understanding of the standard of which he is increasingly gauging his life by. He is striving to imitate Christ. He said that in 1 Corinthians 11.1. And the longer and harder he tries, the more of Christ's holiness and righteousness is being revealed to him. And he becomes more and more humble through the process because he realizes that the standard, the goal, is unattainable at least in this lifetime. For that, we must wait into our glorification. Romans 7, verse 14, through the end of the chapter. I'll read our passage. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. I should have said I'm going to apologize for getting emotional in the middle of this because I always do. It's just so convicting. It's like I'm reading. It's like I wrote it myself. It's just... <clears throat> for that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. And by the way, I'm reading out of the NASB. I know you guys all use the ESV, verse 16. But I do the very thing I do not wish to do. I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. <clears throat> But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil 
is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Savior. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind, I'm serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. I first stumbled across this passage years ago. Uh, it's the first time I tried reading through the Bible. And I found it so very, very comforting that knowing this, this great follower of Christ was dealing with issues, it, it, it gave me something I could grasp a hold of and identify with. It's always had a special place in my heart. Now, this portion of the scripture has, over the years, been the subject of much debate amongst believers. Most all agree that it is the personal testimony of Paul. They disagree as to whether it relates to Paul as a non-believer or as a believer. And since the context, starting in chapter 6 and continuing through chapter 8, is addressing Christian living, or what we call our sanctification, is the focus, uh, then settling the issue of whether or, not, whether or not at this point Paul is a believer has monumental consequences. On the one side, these people claim that Paul is too much in bondage to sin to be a believer. The other side claims that Paul has too much love for God and too much hatred for sin to be an unbeliever. Those who believe that Paul is speaking of a time when he was a non-believer point out being of the flesh and sold into bondage, verse 14, and holding nothing good uh, that's dwelling in him, verse 18, and his calling of himself a wretched man who's trapped in this body of death, verse 24. In other words, they say that Paul is in bondage to sin, hence he is recalling a time before his conversion. Personally, I join with those on the other side who believe that Paul is speaking not only as a believer, but as a mature believer. And I will give you six reasons why I feel that way. Reason number one is the change of verb tenses. In, verse, in verses 1 through 13, which I didn't read, the verbs are all in the past tense. Now, if Paul was giving a pre-conversion testimony, this is where it would fit. But in verse 14 through verse 25, the verses I read, all the verbs, and I counted 36 of them, they're all in the present tense. Reason number two. Only a believer has a love for Scripture and a hatred of personal sin, i.e., verses 14 and 15. This is the language of a believer, not a non-believer. A non-believer does not hate a sin. A non-believer loves a sin. Reason number three, only a believer would give thanks for deliverance, verse 25. 
A non-believer wouldn't give thanks for, uh, because a non-believer has nothing to give thanks for. Pretty basic reasoning. Reason number four, only a believer experiences inner conflict over sin. And that's what this passage is about. That's the theme of it. And to support that, I also want to quote same author, Paul, Galatians 5, 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. So that you may not do the things you please. Now in verse 23, Paul identifies this conflict as a war. A war. Now you can't convince me that a non-believer experiences conflict over his sin because there's nothing inside the non-believer convicted him of his sin. Reason number five. A mature believer grows in an increasing awareness of personal sin. This is a process in which, as a person spiritually grows, he becomes more sensitive to lesser sins in his life. What was that $10 word? Sanctification. And the sixth reason that I believe Paul is describing himself as a believer is that true, born-again, Christ-following believers can and continue to Commit sin. Already brought up Abraham, Moses, Samson, David, Solomon, Jonah, Peter, and Ananias. Scripture is replete with examples. So the theme of this passage is Paul's ongoing struggle with personal sin. And when I read it, the theme of this passage is Dan's ongoing struggle with personal sin. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. Why does Paul say that? Well, after reading our passage, it's crystal clear that there's a problem, right? And now Paul wants to identify the problem. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with Paul. If we go back... If we back up to verse 1, which I didn't read again, and all the way through verse 13, Paul has just addressed where the law fits into the life of a believer. And and in verse 12, Paul summarizes it by saying, the law is holy and righteous and good. The law is not the problem. The problem is Paul. He wants us to know that God's law is inspired and errant, and infallible. The law is not the problem. You will hear people say that it is. I don't know why they say that. It's ignorance or stupidity. They're wrong. You do realize that God's law is still binding on our lives, right? We still are not to have any other gods. We still are not to take his name in vain. We're still called upon to honor the Sabbath and are required to honor our parents, and we are ordered not to murder, steal, commit adultery, lie, or even covet what does not belong to us. Throughout Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is affirming the place of the law in the life of a believer. You've got to take the context of the whole book. 
the loss, not the problem. The person is. But I am of the flesh. Back to 14. This does not say I am in the flesh. If he were in the flesh, he would be an unbeliever. The other side would be right. Of the flesh simply means there still remains in Paul fleshly desires, even as a believer. Still in verse 14, sold into bondage to sin. This does not mean he's living in sin or living to sin or living for sin. He's just living under sin. In the ESV, i got to give it this due credit. I'm a Nasby guy. But it actually translates it right here. Yeah, it simply means living under the influence of sin. Verse 15, Paul expresses confusion over his situation. He loves God. He loves obeying God's law, but he finds himself disobeying and he hates it. He's being very honest and transparent. He hates sin. It was sin that put his Lord and Savior on the cross. That's the mark of a true believer. Do you really hate sin? And especially sin personalized. It's been well said that we have three major enemies, the devil, the world, and self. The devil and the world are easier to accept because they're outside of us. They're foreign to us. But when it comes to self, that's a hard pill to swallow. Struggle against ourself. Let me suggest to you because it's true and because I've lived it out, that your most formidable opponent is yourself. And it's a mark of a mature believer who's arrived at that conclusion. We're so easily self-deceived. Verse 16. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, in other words, sin, I agree with the law. One of the primary functions of the law, again, is to reveal sin to us. And Paul is in total agreement with the law, for he says, I confess that it is good. If not for the, Paul, if not for the law, Paul would not have known sin. He says that in Romans 7, 7. And that's yet another mark of a mature believer. He has grown to embrace the law, not to shun it, because the law reveals sin for what it is. Sin. Sin is sin. Verse 17. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. Paul is here not trying to avoid the issue, or worse yet, trying to give an excuse. No. Paul's saying that when I sin, that's not coming from my new nature, not from my new disposition in Christ. Rather, it's coming from my old nature. And Paul will go on to describe this principle of sin in five more ways. In verse 18 here, he calls it in my flesh. And in verse 21, it's called the principle of evil. And in 23, it's a different law. 24, it's the body of this death. And, and, and in 25, it's the law of sin. 
It's just different ways of saying the same thing. Beloved, no matter how much you spiritually mature, and even if someday your piety should equal that of the Apostle Paul, and I really hope that it does for each and every person here, you will never rid yourself of your sinful nature. Not in this life. If Paul couldn't, I guarantee you, you can't. Verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. And now Paul feels like he has to qualify what he just says. That is, in my flesh. That's an important line right there. That is, in my flesh. He realizes that the only good in him is the new nature that God has given him. That spirit which has taken up residence. He also realizes that his old nature still resides in him. Visit Romans chapter 5 someday. See what that chapter is all about. And as he's already said, it continues to influence him to sin. In verse 23, he'll go on and say that every member of his body is in opposition to his new nature. Sounds like a war to me. And the same is true of you, and the same is true of me. Nothing, nothing, nothing good dwells in us. I'm going to qualify that, though. That is, in our flesh. The only thing good in you is the Spirit of God, if he does live in you. Still in verse 18. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Paul had the desire to do good, but he lacked the ability to do it. Sound familiar? Sure rings familiar to me. None of us, regardless of our desire to do good, has the ability to live the Christian life. And here's the qualificator, qualifier. That is, in and of ourselves. Verse 19. Paul repeats what he already said in verse 15. He admits to being confused over the contradiction being lived out in his life. Only here he identifies his behavior as being evil. Can a Christian commit evil? And notice that he doesn't try to minimize his sin as a rare occurrence. No. He says, I practice, I practice, I practice the very evil I do not wish. Please remember who's writing this. Yeah, Christians do commit evil, and they do it regularly. They do it on a regular basis. You're looking at a big offender. Verse 20. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Sin remained in Paul's life. 
It now ceased to rule his life, but it still had a presence, even in a born-again, spirit-filled, mature believer. Now, those who claim that Paul is recounting a time when he wasn't a believer use this to support their belief. Again, I ask you to notice the verb tenses. In fact, all the verbs in verses 14 through 25 are all in the present tense. And right now, as a believer, remind you, while engaged in the writing of the book of Romans, the most theological and doctrinally rich book in the New Testament, while engaged in writing this book, Paul is engaged in committing sin. That's a wake-up. I would also ask you to heed the context in which these verses find themselves. Paul has already addressed the total depravity of the human race. He dealt with that in chapters 1, 2, and 3. But beginning in chapter 6 and running all the way through chapter 8, Paul is addressing sanctification and what it is to live the Christian life. And right here, right smack dab in the middle of his major treatise on, on, on sanctification, living the Christian life, this is where we find these verses. And Paul says that living the Christian life is going to be a struggle. It's full of conflict. Why is this important? Why do we need to nail this down and realize the truth of that statement? Well, quite frankly, sometimes we give new believers the impression that once you become a believer, all your troubles are over. Nothing could be further from the truth. In a, real, in a very real way, your troubles just begin. Verse 21. <clears throat> I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. Here Paul makes mention of both natures existing simultaneously in one place, in him. It's easy to identify the old fallen nature. It's the evil present in him. And it's also equally easy to identify the redeemed nature. It's the one who wishes to do good. Just a reminder... The last thing that an unbeliever wishes to do is to do what's good. Verses 22 and 23. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Now, when you see the word for or therefore in Scripture, you always know that you are about to get an explanation concerning what's already been taught just preceding or in front of it. For I joyfully concur. Paul is in total agreement with God's law. All the way to his inner being, he knows that God's law is good, but, but, but he sees himself living out a different law a law he knows to be contrary to the law he loves. What a conflict. Think about it. What a battle. Paul uses the strongest word, word 
to describe his, his situation. He calls it a war. <clears throat> and immediately, in the same sentence, he leads you to believe that he has lost this war because he says he's been taken prisoner by sin. And this sin is actively at work in the members of his body. He uses the analogy twice in the same verse. You get the idea Paul is stressing to make his point here, right? His eyes still want to look at what's forbidden. His tongue is still quick to gossip. His mind is still prone to wonder. Sound familiar? Verse 24. <clears throat> Wretched man that I am, exclamation point. I just got to take a sidebar here. You quote this quite a lot when you're praying. praying. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Question mark. If Paul had stopped writing at this point, I might be convinced to side with those who claim that Paul is here recounting a time before his conversion. You can almost hear a defeatist tone in his words. He describes himself as wretched. I took the time to look up some synonyms for wretched. They read like this. Worthless, miserable, pitiful, Unhappy, unfortunate, tormented, afflicted, disreputable, deplorable. You can't accuse Paul of having an overinflated view of himself. He then goes on and admits that it's impossible for him to extradite himself from his current situation. For he says, who will set me free? Paul was not one of these hyper-grace guys that believe it doesn't matter how you live. No, 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 no. That's fool's talk. He's saying the exact opposite. He realizes his sins have been forgiving. He didn't quit writing in chapter 7, right? Chapter 8 here, too. Verse 1 of chapter 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, he, he knows his sins are forgiven, but that doesn't give him a free pass to live however he wants to. And he is crushed when he doesn't live up to the standard that he set for himself, the standard that God has set for him. So what would bring a person to such a depth of despair? Especially a person who's been walking with the Lord for, for 20 years. We would expect him to have this Christianity thing dialed in. And uh, by now he should just be able to coast into eternity, right? Well, that's exactly the point. Since he has been faithfully serving the Lord for such a long time, the Holy Spirit has continue, continually revealed lesser sins to Paul. And Paul realizes that the only truly holy, righteous, and perfect being is God himself. Paul is comparing himself with God. We all need to do that, not with each other, okay? 
that, that's, that's the benchmark. That's where perfection is. It's with God. And he sees how far short of perfection he is. He also sees that he'll never be able to set himself free from this body of death. Those are very descriptive words. He can't. Neither can I. Neither can you. He doesn't stop writing there, though. Verse 25a. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, yes, amen. Amen and amen again and again. Paul bursts forth in a joyous celebration here, acknowledging that only through Jesus Christ and his redeeming work would anyone be set free from their body of death. This is the central message of the gospel, folks. Only Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, can anyone be saved from the penalty of sin. This is justification. And only Jesus, working with the Holy Spirit, can save anyone from the power of sin. That's what we're talking about today, sanctification. And one day, we'll save all the saints from the very presence of sin, glorification. The final consummation of victory over sin, when sin is no longer present in the flesh, and it will occur when we were taken home to be with our Lord and Savior. But until that day, but until that day, like it or not, we live in a war zone. 25b. So then on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God. But on the other, so convicted. With my flesh, the law of sin. Question. Why would Paul, after finally giving us the solution to our problem, go back and restate the conflict? It's like, he, it's like he's mean. He purposefully deflates us immediately after reassuring us. Actually, it's not much of a question because... The answer is so easy. The answer is that the struggle's not over. As long as we walk this earth, the conflict remains and will probably grow just as it did with Paul. But be encouraged. Paul goes on in chapter 8 and focuses on the Holy Spirit and his ministry and the life of the believer, how he enables us to do what we can't do, on our own. Brothers, sisters, this is where we find ourselves, in conflict. On the surface, it seems like a sad way to live. I'm sure Joel Osteen agree with that. But in reality, it's the exact opposite. You can't go on being casual about sin in your life and expect true Joy. It don't work that way. The closer we draw to the Lord, the more aware we become of sin in our lives. And if you are not in a spiritual war battling for personal holiness, 
then perhaps you need to draw closer to the God in the first place. Eleven, as long as you are in this life, you are going to live in Romans 7. So get used to the conflict. You know, we usually do anything to avoid conflict. But the Bible says that there is a conflict which we should embrace because this conflict confirms our faith. So in closing, I would like to quote Paul again. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now on the practical side, I just want to give a plug for this book here. I've been talking about sanctification. And I asked two young men who I admire very much, who, by the way, are enrolled at Master's Seminary right now. And they both, without missing a beat, I told them, man, I've been a Christian a long time. I'm just stuck in stupid, you know, I'm not going anywhere. And my son goes, yeah, you're talking about sanctification, Dad. And I go, yeah. And he goes, he hands me this. I would highly encourage anyone who is serious about growing closer to the Lord and serving him more strongly 